What happens when you make the personal performative? This has been a bit of an undercurrent in a few recent episodes, and today we wanted to put that one concept on display and explore it a little bit more fully. When you have a personal story or perspective on the world, and then you put it into a podcast or really anything that you're doing to ship out into the world, that can change your relationship to it. As a public speaker, for example, I've given the same speech probably hundreds of times. It does change your relationship to it, but everybody in the audience might be seeing that talk for the very first time. So if there's a particularly funny moment or sad moment, if there's an extreme emotion of any kind, I have to embody it as if it's the first time. And it's not just public speaking, but any performance. I mean, I think of musicians, they go through the same thing with their greatest hits, for example. When you take anything personal to you or just the person describing things to you and then you have to go and edit it later, when you move from the personal to the performative, it changes the work. And I think as podcasters, we would be smart to understand that little nuance that makes this medium so rewarding but difficult a lot more deeply. Welcome to Three Clips, where podcasters take us inside their process a few pieces at a time. I'm Jay Akunzo, and this is a Castos original series. Three Clips has one goal, one stated goal every single episode, and that's to demystify the creative process behind great podcasts so we can inspire greater creativity in your work. To help us today, we're going to learn from Brianna Barrett of True Love and Other Non-Communicable Diseases. True Love and Other Non-Communicable Diseases, in addition to being the hardest name of a podcast I've ever had to read, hashtag (laughs) non-communicable, it's a narrative podcast. It's a five-episode run, and it lasts just under two hours. It's basically an audio-only reimagining of Brianna's original show. She has a one-woman stage show about serious illness and resilience. It's about navigating the threads of her life that continue to come together in surprising and unusual ways, even during a global pandemic. Brianna is the creator, writer, and host of the series, again, adapting it from her stage play, and she's a prolific and and very successful storyteller. She's done work in theater and TV, and she's also a younger cancer survivor, a fact that features heavily in her show and other projects. But before we break down this particular show of hers, first, let's meet Brianna Barrett. Brianna, you've done a lot of different types of creative projects. I'd love to know what art form do you feel most at home doing? Like, where are you most comfortable? And what is it about that form? It's been a very circuitous journey. My original sort of first passion, well, okay, I was about to say my original first passion was writing for TV. But when I was a child, I really wanted to write detective novels. (laughs) or historical fiction. I wanted to do everything and I haven't done that yet, but it it took me a long time. So I I was writing these TV pilots that I worked on in my early twenties and I saw myself very much as a behind the camera kind of person. I didn't see myself as someone who would ever perform myself. 
And after I was diagnosed with cancer, I ended up performing stories about that on stage and, and performing some other stories. I, I, you know, I built a, a large repertoire of stories that I was telling on stage and I was surprised by how second nature it felt to me. It turns out it's very easy to play yourself on stage. So although I still don't know that I would identify as an actor and I kind of like squirm and feel silly every time I call myself a performance artist, I do probably at this point feel the most at home just standing on stage being myself and telling my story. What did you find as being most unusual moving from on the stage to on the mic only. Like you've adapted something that there's a live audience witnessing your storytelling. And as a public speaker, like a big part of my career has been speaking on stages. There's just, there's just nothing like it. I love podcasting. There's just nothing like being in a room with people. The silence is more silent. The laughter is more powerful. The, everything just feels heightened and, and in some ways more like a drug to me as a performer anyway. What was it like or what was weirdest trying to like remove the audience in your head and now adapt this one person performance for an audience you can't see? It was really intimidating. I had a brief moment of hubris where I thought, oh, I'll just record myself doing the show and it'll be a nice little document of the show. And I held the mic pretending I had an audience in front of me and perform the show like how I would in my stage voice. And I listened back and realized that this was going to be a lot harder than I thought <laughs> because it really doesn't read. It's a totally different. And, there, and the show opens with me kind of talking about how I've had to develop a totally different voice. I had to go through a lot of iterations of figuring out how to build that sense of intimacy when you are by yourself. Because I think that intimacy comes more freely when you are a human being standing in front of another human being and you're making eye contact and there are all of these other social cues that you can use to build that intimacy with your audience and to read the electricity of the room and really be feeding off of how people are reacting Obviously, it's super uncomfortable to tell jokes and have them not have any kind of reaction behind them. <laughs> like, it's not uncomfortable, you know, because you, you do that a million times in rehearsal. But listening to it back, it was like, oh, no, this is quite uncomfortable. <laughs> it, it's really I, I was a fool to believe it was going to be similar. And it's really different in every way. But I, through many iterations, found techniques that I hope accomplish and fill in the gap of that, that intimacy that you don't have from actually literally being a person standing right in front of another person. And I did that with my voice tonality and with music and with the sound of myself as a child and all of these different other techniques that I use. Oh, interesting. Okay. That was, that was going to be my next question. Uh, is like, what specifically did you have to add in or take out compared to the, the live performance? But th those are definitely a couple of those things. I think about like, Yes, on a stage, you have to put yourself in the, you have to channel the emotion you're trying to convey. But yeah, it's a lot easier to naturally convey that because you're used to conveying it to other people. I mean, of course, there's different elements of it when you're on a stage versus over coffee with somebody. But on a microphone, 
like I remember my first attempts at this stuff. I I sounded so bored on the microphone. I thought I was like, <laughs> I thought I was playing it big. I thought I was like when I was happy. I thought I was sounding happy when I was trying to make you feel or think or even feel sad. I thought I was channeling that, and I just wasn't. And then I went to the other extreme, which is like I went way too big, way too big. Like did yeah. not channel it correctly, <laughs> and like that calibration can be completely maddening to try and figure out like where is your sweet spot and i'm just wondering like did you have others around you trying to help you calibrate your voice for audio or was this really a self-discovery project for you i had the benefit of a few people who helped me uh rein in the uh, initial drafts I uh, am currently in the MFA program at UCLA for playwriting, and I had an advisor at UCLA who was helping oversee the first couple of episodes because uh, because the theater that commissioned me to make the... Uh, I just felt like I wasn't going to have time to do it and also be in school, so I parlayed it into an independent study at school, which was wonderful because then I also had some additional help from my professor who listened to drafts and gave me feedback. And then my best friend, Maggie, who I talk about in the piece, listened to, I think, every draft of it as well and, and gave me feedback and let me know when I was sounding too sad or sounding too manic. And my, my boyfriend is also a great resource in that sense as well. Let's move to the clips. So we're going to pull all of our clips from the first three episodes, episodes one, two, and three. And the first episode was published on March 25th of 2021, with each successive episode airing once every week after that. In the first clip, you have received a call from your doctor hearing your cancer diagnosis. And because your stage play covers this period of your life, and you've performed that play a bunch of times, you've had to revisit this specific moment literally dozens of times in front of hundreds of people to say nothing about the writing of it and the rehearsal time. So with that context in mind, let's go to the clip. Final pathology actually isn't 100% complete yet, but we do have a diagnosis for you, and it is Hodgkin's lymphoma. In the movies, Cancer is usually just a plot device to kill someone off. Likely it'll be chemotherapy. You can set your stuff in there. I'm just I didn't have any role models. And so I start making videos. I later use them in a stage show. As I answer the phone, I also instinctively pull out my camera and prop it on the table across from me and film myself hearing for the first time that I have cancer. And filmed myself hearing for the first time that I had cancer. That I had cancer. That I had cancer. I learned that I had cancer. I have cancer. I have cancer. How many times have I said these words about myself? <laughs> At some point, it starts to feel like summoning Beetlejuice. Well, you're listening to the word there of the woman who was recently named Portland's best storyteller by Willamette Week. Happy to have Brianna Barrett with us this morning. It's just incredible. Tell us about your journey into storytelling and how that related to fighting cancer. 
I'm sure people will be asking about that award, so we'll touch on that in a second. But just to put that aside for a moment, I've heard comedians who kind of act maybe more like uh, one person plays themselves talk about the stories they're telling on a stage that happen to them or those they know. And people will ask, is that 100% true to real life? Is that a true story? And they'll say, it's true enough. <laughs> is this 100% true to real life, this, this story that you're telling, either from a stage or on the show? I think that when you are packaging your life story or story from your life for a limited period of time for other people to hear as a cohesive narrative, you have to make deliberate cuts and omissions that when you know the full story, of course, feel like really significant information that you're leaving out. I think that I, when I was constructing the original stage show, and again, when I was putting together the, the podcast version, I, I have to fight that instinct. I think I'm sort of compulsively honest. I fight that instinct to include everything because it's just like, I, I have to go back to that question of like, is this hitting on my themes? Is this serving the larger narrative that I'm telling right now? I can, you know, ho hopefully I'll live a long life and I'll have time to tell you everything about it in, in, in one medium or another, but certainly not every aspect of the story gets told in the 20 minute episodes that I lay before you or in, in the 80 minute show, just because, Ooh, that'd be a lot of show and it would be very <laughs> messy and complicated and it wouldn't have a clear theme. Life is, is a lot more complicated than a narrative structure can contain. Right. I always talk about the difference between a lifetime and a runtime. That's right. That's beautiful. And trying to fit a lifetime into a runtime, you know, you make, you make certain choices and I'm, I'm fascinated by some of the almost like conflicting ideas or, or unexpected things, especially if you're new to production, like, a fleeting moment in your life. Like this is not the show now. We're talking about like you actually experienced something in fleeting fashion in your life, but it carries such depth of emotion or it's just, it was a memorable fleeting moment. So it has like an outlandishly important place in the story, but it really happened in a compressed, you know, perhaps even a few seconds of time in reality. In the story, you're probably going to spend more time on the fleeting moment than like a long stretch of time, which I've done a lot of narrative podcasting, a long stretch of time where only a few important details to the story might have happened. You might sum up, right? You might you might fast forward five years, whereas like we just spent three minutes talking about a two second interaction you had. <laughs> now we're going to spend 30 seconds summarizing five years. And it's just like this weird you know, it's it's magical in some ways because that's only possible in production or in storytelling. But you're you're compressing or expanding time, not to stay true to the lifetime, but A, to fit the runtime, and more importantly, to spend appropriate amounts of time with the most important or profound details, right? It's like the importance of the moment dictates how much time you spend on it, not actually how much time you endured it in life. Yeah, and, and the importance to the specific story that you're telling. I was a, a storytelling coach for a charity organization called Notes of Hope in Portland, Oregon for a couple of years where we would uh, have an annual fundraiser where different other cancer survivors would get on stage and tell their stories. And I was really affected by that experience of helping people 
recognize the story arcs in their own life stories. I remember someone that I was coaching for that event who we met up at a coffee shop and he told me, I just let him just like talk for an hour and a half. Like he just told me everything about his life uh, <laughs> from his diagnosis to his <laughs> next diagnosis, everything. And then I pulled out a piece of paper and a pen and I just started tracking like, okay, here's the arc that I'm seeing. And he was so uh, what, 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 uh, grateful in a way. He was just like, this is, Amazing. I've never thought about my life as a story that had like a narrative. Like I, I never saw these events building on each other in a sensible right. way. And, and it was really empowering and exciting for him to be able to make sense of the events of his life in that way. And I think that's the power of telling stories about our lives is we do get to, we get to take back that control. We we're not waiting for someone else to tell us what our lives meant. We're deciding what was important and what's worth sharing. And I think that's a really important part of what keeps me performing. I've talked about writing a lot publicly and how the relationship between writing and the subject matter I don't know if this comes from school or not, but there's, I think, a misconception, which is you if you have the answers to something, if you know the thing, if you already understand, you can write about it. And I've always found that writing is a way to understand. Yes. And, you know, even if you think you know something heading into it, forcing yourself to articulate it, tell the story of it or explain it, even if it's not in writing, if it's spoken, it just deepens your understanding or changes it, or you find more nuances to it. Like it, it enhances your understanding. So I always say, don't write what you understand, write to understand. But now I'm, I'm talking really about a pretty contained moment there of like a drafting process, editing it and shipping it. And then you're done. You're not then going out for a couple of days and coming back to your room the next week and writing the same exact piece. Mm -hmm. You've delivered the same story over and over and over again. And so as this, this clip, was revealing to the audience. How does that repetitiveness change your understanding or relationship to what you're talking about that moment in your life? It complicates it. Certainly. I think that one of my first thoughts when I was originally commissioned to do the, the podcast version of the piece was almost reluctance <laughs> because I had begun to feel like I was jinxing something, you know, by continuing to tell the story. I found it taxing to say this, this line of dialogue about how, and I say it in present tense every time I have cancer, I have cancer, I have cancer, like, you know, I have cancer for the, the a good chunk of the show and I'm reliving that experience. And I think especially as other people in my life have passed away or I've had other health issues crop up, it's just like, wow, I, I'm playing the role of me with cancer and I'm saying this sentence so many times, like I say in the clip, like it just starts to feel like summoning Beetlejuice. It's like, how many times do I say the sentence? 
before I just, you know, have to actually relive that experience. Uh, I think that's a phobia that's in my mind, which is part of why I was so eager to reframe the, the narrative that I told on stage into this retrospective of, you know, what it means to say that, that over and over and over again, which is the way that I presented in the podcast version, I get to avoid having to say it as much. And also I think that it adds this interesting weight to the project to know, like, this isn't, we're, we're not going to live in the moment with me of finding out we're past that. I'm several years out of that experience, but still very much in the experience of telling you about it. And what does that do to the narrative to know that I not, not in that experience, but reliving it for you. When you, well, actually, I think I should just address this directly. And I'm a happy to take this out. You know, this, this preamble certainly should come out, but I'm happy to take this out. And I'm happy uh, if you don't want to address it, but people will be wondering, because we've mentioned it a couple of times, what is the status of your health now? Are you in remission or is this still affecting your life? I am in remission and it still affects my life a lot. Of... <laughs> you, correct. I should not have phrased it that way. You're absolutely right. Yeah. I think that is an overlooked aspect of the cancer experience, especially for young adult cancers, is that There are long-term side effects and long-term phobias and the fear of recurrence and all of this that follows you for the rest of your life. There are some cancers, not my cancer, I'm happy to say, but, but many cancer survivors with whom I am friends who have lifelong treatment that they still have to go back to the hospital and deal with despite being out of treatment. And when we think of cancer as something that old people get or people die from or whatever, it's easy for us to forget, you know, that it's not a binary of whether or not you're, you're better now. When you're a cancer survivor, you're a cancer survivor for the rest of your life. And when you get it, when you're young, there's a lot more of life that, (laughs) that you're being a cancer survivor in. So yeah, I would say I'm, I am not in treatment. Uh, I've, I've been reading this great book this week about cancer and performance. And he, he describes people without cancer as temporarily unaffected by cancer. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> the world is people, people affected by cancer and people temporarily unaffected by cancer. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, almost everyone statistically is going to have a cancer experience themselves or someone they know. Yeah. And and I, I'm just lucky, I guess I got it. I got to experience it early and <laughs> yeah, but I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing well. I did have a health scare that is documented in the series. Cause it just so happened to be happening while I was making the show. But um, yeah, I'm doing well. And we, and we won't spoil it. We always encourage people listening to this to go listen to the shows that we're we're talking to. So no spoilers on that one. I like I no like spoilies, oh, but I geez, am no still spoilies. alive. So that's a spoilie for you. We, we did not. Brianna is not currently an amalgam of past clips that we used that we put through AI. <laughs> to talk to yes. Brianna. We uh, did not do that, despite what they did in the Anthony Bourdain document. Uh-oh. Ooh, oh. Awkward. Um, that is so awkward. Speaking of storytelling and all that goes with it, you were awarded best storyteller. Now here I am thinking I 
I just, I, I like telling stories. Is there a career in that? Do I become a journalist? Do I have to pitch Hollywood a movie? I, oh, podcasting's a thing. I'll pursue that. You know, never thinking that like someone could be named as a best storyteller in a location. So was there a tournament? Did you have to put on a gladiator suit? How did it work? <laughs> it was a lot more low key than that. though. <laughs> <laughs> Willamette Week, a uh, weekly paper in Portland, has a, it's not a gladiator style. It's just a poll that they do every year in the summer. It's called Best of Portland, and they rate a lot of things. It's like best restaurants, best theaters, best cannabis dispensaries, because again, we're in Portland. Hey, I'm in Massachusetts. And they have categories for like best actor, best actress, best screenwriter i think they they've got bests of a lot of things so it wasn't yeah. like the headline was brianna barrett is the best at telling stories i was just there's a nomination period and i guess i got enough nominations to be one of the people you could vote for and then got it and then people voted for me twice two years consecutively well congrats it's well earned so in this clip, we're moving to episode two of the series and you and your friends uh, work in advocacy for cancer survivors. And this prepared you for something as chaotic as a worldwide pandemic, perhaps. You're all more familiar anyway with revisiting these stories over and over again, even sometimes using what you call the cancer card in certain, certain situations. So I would refer to this as the cancer card clip. Let's take a listen. <laughs> I mean, the only time I've seen her not play the cancer card is when we got pulled over by the police and he was just instantly like, we're using it. <laughs> we're using it. <laughs> yeah. And did it work? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The three of us are cancer survivors. We all work in advocacy. And like anyone who works in any kind of advocacy, sometimes you we know, get pretty burned out. Move it, you know, moving the dial, but... Well, I just know how slow things are, especially progress is slow. You often find yourself telling the same story over and over again. It can feel like walking around with an open wound you never quite let heal. So when the pandemic hit, many of us cancer survivors were uniquely qualified to handle the sudden interruption to our daily life. It's not the first time we've had to watch our lives transform into something we don't recognize. Like, you know, everyone speeds and yet somehow I got pulled over. It just felt like that's it. I've lost like every semblance of myself from before my diagnosis. Oh my gosh. It was like a very traumatic moment for like just getting pulled over. I'm like a rule breaker in every yes. sense. <laughs> um, are, did, was this part of your Walter White turn? I just like went and like broke every law known to mankind, you know? <laughs> I feel like that's like the stereotype, right? That it's like now I feel... You, you talk about watching your life transform into something that you don't recognize. And that's relating to the cancer diagnosis and, and dealing with that afterwards during treatment. But it also seems to apply to performance. So do, do you sense a like a blurred line between, you know, what is life and what is performance. I feel like the cancer card is kind of like, we're now going to use the cancer of our real life almost like performatively. We're going to like codify it into this thing and we're going to play it. Like we're going to talk about it. It's like, it's a technique. It becomes a technique almost a named thing or a trope. I saw the cancer card here as almost emblematic of, of almost what you're doing the whole way through, which is like, you're performing something based on life. Does, does that 
start to just blur the lines? Absolutely. Yes. And that is part of why I wanted to include these conversational elements in the podcast version, which are obviously not part of the stage show. They were these interludes that I I just really wanted to be able to address that, the performance of it all, because it is often an invitation to a performance immediately whether you want to be or not you are now performing having cancer for your friends and and family and people on the street who see that you're bald and are wondering what your deal is i mean you're sort of thrust into this role of having to think about how other people are reacting to you and yeah and that's very very much what you're doing when you're performing especially when you're performing a story about your cancer, which all three of us in that conversation have done. And so that's kind of something that we touch on in that conversation as well. It's just what it's like to have that rote memorized. Here's when I got cancer story um, that becomes such a part of you. God, we have so many of those scattered throughout our lives, right? Like even less severely emotional, like, or maybe they're all emotional to some degree, but they're not always so hard to talk about. Like, how did you two meet? You know, like, what do you do? (laughs) Totally. What do you do, do, Brianna? What do you do? Which, by the way, for anybody who's in a creative field, uh, unless you're talking to a fellow creative, such a complicated question. What do you do, really? Uh, How much time you got? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I so I there is that those elements are scattered everywhere, and this sort of seems like you're you're kind of almost like living in solely those elements. But I, I did have another like meta performance question for you, which was. So we're talking about performance, your performance on the mic, heading out of those quotes. So I first of all thought that these moments with your friends brought some lightness, like a little bit of levity to, you know, what could be a serious or somber story in in a great way. And then on the back end of the first little flurry of the conversation we hear, you know, the quote was, you guys were laughing and then you start to narrate. And I noticed and I could hear it that as a narrator recording in that moment, you were smiling. I could tell you were happy. And like, that is such a conscious choice. Cause it's not like you are actually with your friends and then running away into the other room to record your voiceover. <laughs> yeah. It's performed. It's conscious. And I don't know, I don't really have a question here except to say that like, I want people to notice those little details more and to use them in their work because it's, it's a delightful part of audio that I think oftentimes people don't recognize. Yes, it was a conscious choice, you know, to match that that tone and mood and make it sound as if somehow, (laughs) you know, that those moments were part of a same moment. And, it, you know, you can I, I like to listen to the sound of my friends talking and pause it and record my audio. Like I try to put myself back into that emotional place and like feel the warmth of like "Mm, my friends we're talking we're laughing and yeah now it's putting my smile on my face right now just thinking about it so (laughs) that's a that's a good technique and the message is the listener can tell the listener can absolutely tell they might not be able to see it but they can absolutely hear it and i think that's that's important it's it's this is why it's people say it's a visual medium in many ways there's definitely a podcast bingo card that you can have out. So one is if they say podcasting is intimate, that's like the free space in the middle. <laughs> so audio is intimate, free space. Then there's, it's a visual medium. If they open by giving you some hints at what's coming and then they interject and say, but first we have to go back. <laughs> so there's a whole bunch of them. Welcome to my life podcasting about podcasts. Anyways, let's move to the third and final clip. 
this one is in episode three. And Brianna, you've you've met with your ex recording the conversation that you had, and you inform him that you've been performing a stage play that involves very personal details of the relationship. And he had yeah. no idea, no idea until you told him. And then you offer to read that part of the play for him. Let's go to the clip. I've done a lot of interviews over the years, you know? Yeah. Nationally and internationally syndicated television. And this is probably gonna be the most uncomfortable, awkward one that I've ever done. Listening back, I realized the audio quality isn't great. We had to be outside. We had to be at a distance. It ended up being a fairly windy day. I feel like maybe this is just me being totally lacking in self-awareness, but like I feel like our relationship was certainly not perfect, but like uh, it wasn't terrible. I don't think it was terrible. Like I don't. I was like, why am I the only one who hasn't seen this? Why do you think? Because you're an asshole. That's the reason? I don't know. Well, apparently you're mortified of me seeing it. I don't know. You don't have a guess about why that might be? I don't really guess. I just assume I look like an asshole. Why is that your assumption? Because you always tell me how much of an asshole I am. I do not. You totally do. I feel like I've been very complimentary over you're, the years. What? Not to my face. Should I review your part of the show? Sure. I would like to see it. Let me hear it, please. I, I'm horrified. I'm literally about to live inside of a nightmare. Okay. It's we, even worse of a nightmare. Can we turn this camera around? <laughs> I, I used to be a sports journalist, and I remember walking up to coaches, you know, 20 plus years my senior, especially when I was a student and all baby face and I had to like stick a microphone in their face after like a very important moment in their career and like ask them basic stupid questions to get quotes. And it was like, you swallow your pride in that moment and you're like, well, this would be really good for the piece I'm writing. So oh, like I'm doing this for you, dear reader. Like I hope yeah. you appreciate it. Was there any element of that when you're like, I really probably should talk to my ex about this and record it? Yeah. <laughs> yes. In the stage show, I tell a pretty lengthy story about my relationship and how it intersected with my diagnosis and treatment. And, and part of that is because I wanted to talk more broadly about dating with cancer and about getting broken up with, with cancer uh, and all of those things that are part of normal young adult life, but we don't get to see as much through the lens of someone who has cancer. That felt important to me. There are a lot of recurring themes about how it affects relationships and affects our self-esteem in relationships when I talk to other people with a cancer experience. So yeah, and I mean, the show is called True Love and Other Non-Communicable Diseases. So the quest for love is very much parallel with the experience of my health crises in the show. So he's kind of a main character, I guess, in the show. And he was not aware of that. I never told him that, <laughs> that I was telling stories about him until, I mean, the show is a multimedia piece. I did send him at one point the video clips that I use of him in the stage show and just said like, hey, I'm telling the story. You're kind of in it. And I use these video clips. Is that okay? 
and he he gave me his blessing. But as you can tell in in this clip, he's always been curious why he's never had an opportunity to actually see or hear the show. And similar to the question of like, what is it to continually perform your diagnosis? What is it to continually perform your breakup is definitely a strange thing that ages weirdly the more you do it. When if somebody were to try and tell a personal story in whatever form, maybe a podcast, maybe a stage play, literally anywhere you might tell these stories and they're thinking about involving or telling stories of people close to them that they would like to sort of do them justice, whether or not they have a, an existing relationship, but that, you know, they, they want to honor that relationship somehow. Where do you begin that process? Because, you know, it's a little different perhaps than if you're doing something purely fictional where character development is, you know, I'm not saying it's safe. You might have some kind of critique come your way, but you're certainly not like throwing your dad under the bus or exaggerating <laughs> this, this quirky character from your partner that they might not want out there as much. So where do you begin to turn a personal relationship into a kind of character? I start with a place of focusing on what part of the story is mine. Something that I asked myself several times when I was incorporating details about friends, family, ex-boyfriends, whomever in the show is like, is this my story to tell? And I tried to be very deliberate in not veering into territory that didn't belong to me. I try to very deliberately get away from, you know, trying to cast anyone as a villain in a story other than myself, which I talk about very directly in, in one of the episodes is like, I don't want to be standing on stage performing a hit piece on someone. I want to be talking about the person, especially in a, in a, in a solo performance piece. I want to be talking about the person in the context of how they served my story and my character development and not allow something about them to dominate the narrative. In our, our fourth and final segment, we actually don't have a clip, but we want to look ahead. And perhaps this relates to your making of a podcast, continuing this story. And if so, I'd love to know that. But maybe this just affects your storytelling in whatever project you move to next. But what is something that this experience or this story has changed in the way you tell stories that you think you're going to take with you and maybe even explore more fully in the next project or the next episode or whatever you do next? I love a meta narrative for sure. I feel like this story, when I was first diagnosed, I did film it, made a series of videos on YouTube that then became the basis of my stage show that then became the basis of this podcast. So I joke that like I am interested in what how many layers deep the meta can go in terms of me processing what it was like to be processing to be what it was like to be processing. So who knows? I mean, I loved editing the podcast. I learned so much. I feel like I'm someone who came into it knowing nothing. I just kind of agreed to it blindly because it sounded like an adventure and an opportunity to learn. And it really was. I would love to make more I am available for hire if anyone wants to commission me to make another podcast. 
but yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been a weird time in COVID. I haven't been on stage performing anything for years now. So I don't know how it'll affect my future stage performances because I, um, (laughs) I have not had the benefit of finding out just yet. Brianna, thank you so much for coming on this show. Thank you for being vulnerable and telling your own story. I know having an act, you can start to have all kinds of existential questions about whether the act is working, whether you want to keep doing it, all these things. And so many things. I know I speak for a lot of people when I say that I'm glad that you decided to turn this into a podcast. So the show is True Love and Other Non-Communicable Diseases. Brianna, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find all episodes on our website and support the show by sending a friend to this site. It's threeclipspodcast.com. This episode was produced by Jude Brewer with original music from Tyler Litwin. My work, including my podcast Unthinkable and my free newsletter for creative people can be found at jayaconzo.com. Three Clips is a Castos original series. As a company, Castos believes what I believe about podcasting, that it's about depth in a world trending shallow resonance, not just reach. And so they've developed a whole suite of tools to help prolific podcasters make better shows, distribute those shows, analyze them, and crucially, create private podcasts. I think this is a wonderful trend. If you want to reward your loyal fans with some bonus material, maybe a whole second show, if you're an in-house communications professional and you want to help your team learn about the brand you work for, Whatever the case, private podcasts give you the opportunity to continue the logical march between a listener and creator or voice, which is a march towards resonance, towards depth, towards connection. So you can check out more of these tools, including that suite of tools from Castos offering private podcasts at castos.com. That's C-A-S-T-O-S.com. All these links are in your show notes. And now it's time for our bonus segment, where every episode we ask our guests for a podcast they'd recommend that is not at the top of the charts. It's a show they want to show some love to. We call this segment, Play It Forward. You're Wrong About is a podcast that I love that comes from my hometown of Portland, Oregon. The hosts have this beautiful rapport with each other. The show is about unpacking stories that maybe you've heard about before in passing and believed to know the truth of. For example, did a lady spill hot coffee on herself at a McDonald's and sue them for a bunch of money? And is that why now coffee cups say caution hot on them? Spoiler, no. (laughs) They take cultural myths that we've built in our minds about people and they unpack what it is that really happened and why you should care. And it really teaches critical thinking and looking for the answers. And it's also funny and fun while they do it. And one of the hosts is leaving, which I'm so sad about, but I'm excited to see what this next chapter of their podcast world is going to look and feel like. So I would recommend you check out You're Wrong About. Okay, that's it for this episode. I'm Jay Akunzo. And as always, I believe doing meaningful work, especially in podcasting, but really anywhere. It's not about who arrives, you know, like how many, how many downloads or visitors. No, 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 no. It's all about who stays. We can't do anything meaningful without that. So thank you so much for staying with me. And I'll talk to you on the next episode of Three Clips. Until then, keep making what matters. See ya.